So I, I, I guess we'll start. I think this is uh, all right. I, I have this first question, which is always the same, which is uh, who are you and what do you do? Who am I and what do I do? Well, I'm Dan Morin. What do I do? Well, until not too long ago, uh, I was the I was a senior editor at MacWorld in the U.S., um, where I had been full time for seven years and a uh, freelancer for about a year and a half before that. And now I'm not, and that's been an interesting adjustment. So these days, I guess I I should say I'm a freelance technology writer. Um, I'm a regular contributor at popsci.com, popular science, and a, a uh, regular contributor for Six Colors, which is Jason Snell's site. And in my spare time, I do a bunch of podcasts, um, including a, uh, a tech podcast called The Rebound, uh, another tech podcast with Jason Snell, Clockwise, um, a movie podcast with Lex Friedman called Not Playing with Lex and Dan, and I show up as a panelist on both The Incomparable and its spinoff Total Party Kill with a fair amount of frequency. Um, and then my sideline is a very unprofitable, um, well, I don't think you can call it a career at this point, of writing novels. <laughs> so that's kind of... <laughs> Uh, that's kind of a nutshell, let's say, of things that I participate in. So I like how you ended with the novel uh, part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something that hasn't borne a lot of fruit yet, but I've been slamming my head against a wall for about, oh, a decade working on that. So, you know, it's a slow, gradual process. Well, yeah, it's, it, uh, isn't it that's supposed to work that way, right? It's writing a novel, right? It's, right. it's not supposed to be easy, I think. And, I, and I've written several. It's just getting them published is the harder part. Well, yeah. That I imagine, like, what what kind of stuff do you write? If you like, if you don't mind sharing, because I know. No, I, I'm absolutely, uh, absolutely, always thrilled to talk about it. <laughs> since I can't apparently do anything else with it, um, I mainly write science fiction and fantasy. Um, the book that I've been working on for now, I, every time I sort of go back and look at my files and like they have the created on dates, I'm like, oh my god, I've been working on that book for five years. Wow, it'd be great if it was done. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I've been working on a variety of things, though. I think I've finished at least, you know, initial drafts of, say, four or five books, mostly science fiction and fantasy. I'm working on a sort of urban fantasy book right now. Um, which is going kind of slowly, but that's, again, that's kind of how these things go. Um, but the uh, two books I finished most recently before that were both sort of science fiction space opera books with a espionage, you know, spies angle. So those are, that's sort of what I'm most interested in. So, yeah, well, that sort of makes sense to me because I, I, I know you from The Incomparable. So, you know, that basically fits yeah so <laughs> basically yeah a laundry list of things that i love talking about on the incomparable to know and is the things that i also enjoy writing about as it turns out yeah well yeah that, not not that weird really so yeah exactly predictable, <laughs> yeah, predictable. predictable yeah so you're not writing romance novels that's pretty much what you're saying right i am not writing romance novels i won't deny that there have been romance plots in some of the novels that i've written uh, and actually a friend of mine who is a uh, a fantasy author a guy named mike cole um, who he, um, I think one of the things he, he vowed to himself at some point that he would see if he could write romance novels under a pseudonym, mainly because he just felt like, you know, it's, it's a very strongly, uh, female dominated industry. And he was just curious. He's like, you know, there are so many women writing, writing romance novels. I wonder if I could essentially write it under a woman's name and get it published. Um, I th actually, I think he wanted to write one under his own name too, at some point, just be like, I want to, I want to sort of break through that barrier there and just see if I can do that. <laughs> um, but he did, he did write a pretty convincing Regency style romance as part of like a, there was an online competition where a bunch of writers submitted, um, like short stories essentially in things that they wouldn't normally write, but they were all under pseudonyms. And he, his was a Regency romance, like a Jane Austen style <laughs> romance. And Nobody believed it was him because it was so different from all the other stuff they wrote. But I think he did a really good job with it. And it's I, I think, you know, the, it's interesting the the categories we all fall into when we feel like, oh, yes, romance novels written, you know, predominantly by women and for women. It's like, yeah, but why is that? And, and is that necessarily true? Or is that just kind of the way that field's been built up? Or the same thing you could say about plenty of other fields where men dominate things. Like, is that? Yeah, I was yeah. about to say, that's one of the, like, three <laughs> fields where that's actually true, that, that it's right, dominated right. by women. But yeah. 
which is sad, but you know. Yeah, agreed. Oh, and now a phone is ringing. Sorry, <laughs> I apologize for that. Why do I have a phone that actually rings? Yeah, and why it's does it sound like an old timey phone? <laughs> I'm going to leave that in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and you know, the best thing now is that because I have all these devices, these especially Apple devices, when a phone rings, everything in my house rings. <laughs> Literally four or five devices ring at the same time. It's a little nuts. Yeah, I'm the same because I uh, uh, review like Android stuff. Basically, mm-hmm. and I have like I have I have like a bunch of LG tablets and a phone here, and before we started, I just kept turning all of them off. Yeah, that's smart because I just yeah I can't be bothered to go to this through the settings, so I just turn everything off, and hopefully nothing will ring on my end. That's sort of the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already screwed that one up, so sorry about that. <laughs> okay, so we have to talk about your technology writing, but before we do that, like how awesome is the name Six Colors? <laughs> Like how I am so, like I got mad when like because Mike launched Relay FM, which uh-huh. I think is a perfect name. Yeah, right? that's really good. And then Jason showed up with six colors, and I just got angry. I just got like, yeah, I, I am a little jealous that he came up with a name. And, and what's good about it, I think, is that it it is not something much like something like Daring Fireball. It's both personal and kind of general. Like it's not tied necessarily directly to Jason. Um, so, which is nice because it's sort of a good umbrella term. And so I write for it, which is great. And it's not like I'm writing for Jason Snell's blog. I'm like, I'm writing for something that sounds like an actual publication. Yeah. Well, Um, there's that. And it's also not like really a, you know, on the nose Apple name, you know? Right. Exactly. It's not the Apple, Apple, Apple site, right? Apple world. (laughs) Yeah. Which people kept telling us for years, we should rename Macworld to Apple. Why don't you call it Apple world? All you write about is iPods. Why isn't it iPod world? (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think that's smart. I, I, I envy that. I keep trying to figure out if I want to like you know start up a uh, a sort of a a site for myself, not necessarily like a paper site, but just like I, I try to come up with a good name. And so I have a blog, which is awesome, called Dan Shot yeah, First. That is the best name for a blog. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing; it's like it's kind of limited. Like you can't have anybody else write for Dan Shot First. I feel like. <laughs> Um, and I don't, even I don't write enough for it as it is, but I wanted to stake it out at some point because I felt like, hey, it meshes with, you know, one of my, my favorite uh, uh, movies of all time. And it's got kind of like a twist on it that personalizes it. And there's like, I mean, it's like multi-layered. Like, it's got a lot of layers going on. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Speaking of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Uh, we do a show here that's sort of like The Incomparable. Sort of that's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, science fiction stuff and TV shows and all of that. And we did a, uh, we wanted to do a Star Wars episode. And the plan was to talk about the trailer at the beginning and then mm-hmm. the, for the rest of it, the movies. And we made yeah. the same mistake you guys did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we basically have an hour and 10 minutes of, there's 10 minutes of Indiana Jones <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> and then it's all the trailer. That, that is just, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, it's 88 seconds. There's a lot you can talk about in 88 seconds, I'm saying. so. Yeah, one of my co-hosts basically said that it's not really 88 seconds, right? Because if you take out the titles and the, Black oh, in the black space, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not... It's like it's like 30 seconds long. Yeah. yeah. And then there's... Yeah, and then I imagine there's a lot of podcasts out there right now doing the exact same thing. Like, Yeah, I like to think The Incomparable, we got on that pretty quick. I think we uh, we sort of jumped on an opportunity uh, when it presented itself. Yeah, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't listen to it. And then we recorded, I think, on Tuesday. And then today, uh, in the morning, I started listening to you guys. I'm like, oh, Jesus, this is just... <laughs> Like we're all doing this now. It's just Yeah. Well, you know, you get me and John Syracuse starting on Star Wars and you'll basically we could probably just have a twenty four hour a day, seven day a week podcast. <laughs> Someone would have to bring us water and you know, just so we could hydrate every once in a while and occasionally I would slop, sleep while John is talking and John would sleep while I'm talking and you know, but I think we could make it do twenty four hour Star Wars news network. <laughs> I'd listen to that, honestly. I would. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. You should not listen. No one should listen to that. <laughs> well, no one should, but some of us would, you know. It's Someone like, <laughs> will. I, I think at some true. point it's not a choice anymore. Like it's. Yeah, yes, you're right. It's just it's a compulsion. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so, okay, I guess back to tech writing. Yes. Uh, which is, why do you do that? And I, okay, this is me, this is my serious voice, but like, because I think. It's weird writing about tech. I don't know why I do it. Like yeah. I've, I've written for a tech magazine now for I think five or six years. But like, uh-huh. why why tech? Well, so it's interesting. I have a sort of a weird background in that um, I always liked both writing and technology. Like among my family, I mean, we got our first computer 
when I was, I don't know, 10 or something. Um, and even before that, I really loved like playing around with technological gadgets. Like, you know, we would borrow a camcorder from some family friends or something like that. Um, or I just really liked poking around in the TV or taking things apart or stuff like that. So I always kind of had an interest in that. But when, and when we got a computer, I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, I can learn to do all these nifty things and pretty, you know, I pretty much outstripped my parents almost immediately. Um, they could not figure out how to do anything because I had like changed all the systems and they were like googly <laughs> eyes over here and like all these crazy, I used to have this book of like stupid Mac apps or something and I had all of them installed at one point. Um, but when I went to, I always loved writing as well. And so when I went to college, I went, I studied English. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time doing that. But my jobs during that period were pretty much always to do with technology. During the summer, I would go back home and I would work at a, um, uh, the, I used to work at the Harvard Law Library. I was like a tech guy there for a long time. And so, but I, that was like my summer job. I was essentially like an hourly employee who came in in the summers and they had me like move printers, hook up printers and go around and troubleshoot people occasionally and, you know, move basically a lot of lugging equipment around. Um, and so when I got out of college with an English degree and I realized, well, there's not a lot of opportunity <laughs> to just drop right into that field. Um, I kind of fell back on technology. And so I went and worked at a small research program at Harvard for a while. And uh, I was basically one of their uh, IT support people. And I also got into programming a bit that way. I was a web developer. So I built websites. I was a PHP developer, recovering PHP developer. <laughs> um, and a lot of people always ask me, like, wait, your degree is in English? Like, why are you doing this? I'm like, well, I'm fairly good at it. And I had the benefit of, since I was someone who had studied in, like, the humanities, I could actually talk to people. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so I think I think it was a nice niche for me of being, like, someone who was conversant in tech, but also was, you know, could sit down in a room and explain things to people. Um, and so I, I, at some point, I got kind of tired of that just because I knew I was going to be working on these tech projects forever. I had this website project. It was it was involved building a CMS. So you know it's kind of doomed at the beginning. Yeah. But we were like, oh, we're going to build the best CMS ever. It's going to make it like so easy to deploy CMSs and blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, oh, my God, I will never be finished with this project. It will literally – I could be working on this for the rest of my life and I would never be done. So I decided I needed to be done with that. And I had some you know interpersonal issues at that job uh, that I felt like, you know, it's time for me to go do something else. Um and so technology, writing about technology was something I had always done a little bit on the side. On like, you know, uh, some of my friends, we had like a blog for a while. And so I would write about technology there. I was like, oh, well, that seems like a thing I could get paid to do, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, strangely enough, I emailed, um, I, I was an avid reader of Macworld Magazine. And so I emailed Jason Snell because his email address at the end of all of his columns. And I was like, hey, you have any tips for uh, getting into technology writing? And he suggested I go and pitch stuff to Tidbits, which is a long-running Mac site. And I did not do that. I totally did not listen to Jason. <laughs> um, and so I spent like another year working in the tech field. And then I uh, actually went out to Macworld Expo after I'd left that job and met Jason. And sort of was like, hey, I emailed you about this thing. you have any jobs? <laughs> and he's like, well, we're starting this blog. If you're interested in that, send me an email. I was like, okay. And then I badgered him basically long enough until he gave me a job doing that. Um, and again, I feel like for me at that point, and this was 2006, um, it was, I felt like I could write about tech in a way that was funny and approachable. And there, at that point, there weren't that many people doing that, I felt like. Um, and that field obviously has exploded yeah. <laughs> in the last decade. So it's no longer as unique as it, as it probably once was, or uh, as, at least as, as rarefied, I should say. Um, but it's still something that I, I love playing around with technology. And I love explaining to other people how to use it. And some people get very, very tired of me explaining to them how to use <laughs> technology in my, in my own life, personally. They're like, oh, yeah, just shut up about this stupid, like, Amazon Fire TV stick. Um, and so, you know, at least having that as an outlet to write about it and hopefully help people accomplish things with technology, which is, is my biggest... I feel like I'm sort of an advocate for technology, like yeah, this is cool. You should try this because it's, it lets you do this neat thing. And isn't this cool? Cause we live in the future. Um, and yeah, I, I think helping people use technology and sort of get the most out of their technology is 
what I find really rewarding about it. And it's definitely more interesting to me than writing about, say, sports or finance. <laughs> so I guess I lucked out in that regard. Well, yeah, I think there's like, I think there's a lot of us like that because I have a political science degree. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And I write about tech, which makes no sense, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> well, I think you can bring, you know, there's a lot of politics in tech. So I feel like you can bring your expertise to bear on that. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. That's, I think that's stretching it maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, we we all sort of engage in trying to justify our college degrees. Right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, you're just trying to yeah, just just like a what's what's that expression? A, a square in a in a, oh, a round shaped hole or whatever. Yeah, well, a square peg in a in a round oh, yeah, hole. See, yeah, that, I almost got that. I, yeah, it's so close. No, yeah. it's good. <laughs> okay, so but like because if you started really writing in 2006 and you were a mag guy, mm-hmm. that's basically the best time to start writing about Apple, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we sort of, I got in on the early wave there, which is, I had a Mac pretty much straight through. Our first computer was a Mac, that one I got when I was 10. Uh, and we'd had a couple after then. And pretty much every time I had the money to buy a computer, it was always a Mac. I did build my own PC. I was young. I needed the money. Uh, no, I, bu- I built my own PC when I was just in my early 20s because after we left college, my friends and I would like keep in touch by playing games online. And the Mac, obviously, still not a great gaming platform to this day. Which is so still ridiculous for, to me. I know. It, it makes me sad. Yeah. But so we so I built a PC that I used for several years and eventually gave away to a family member and I think it came very close to catching on fire but didn't so that's good <laughs> that's always a plus um, yeah yeah always yeah always a big fan especially when you give it to your cousin who's got like two young kids and you're like all right I think like years later as I was looking at it, I took it apart because they were having some problems with it I'm like you see these scorch marks here yeah that's not good we should probably get you a new computer yeah. <laughs> but it was free. <laughs> So when you started, I guess that was pre-iPhone days? Yeah, just barely. Um, so yeah, the iPod had been out for about five years at that point. Um, and then the iPhone came out, I guess I was about a year into my career, um, or it was announced. So yeah, the original iPhone event, I think, up until the most recent Apple event, the iPad event, which I did not go to because I was no longer at my job, um, I think I had been to pretty much every Apple event except for the original iPhone <laughs> That must Or the, the announcement. <laughs> yeah, well, I was the low man on the totem pole, and they sent me to CES, which incidentally <laughs> is a hellhole. So I'm like sitting in a corridor in the Las Vegas convention center, like refreshing my computer, watching my colleagues who are there, you know, live blogging the iPhone announcement and just like looking around the hall at all these people walking around and be like, guys, did you see that? This is cool. This is so. Oh, God. Why am I in Las Vegas? This is terrible. <laughs> yeah, you wanted the. Oh, that's just. I don't know. That's, I just feel sad now. <laughs> just... Yeah, me too. I was pretty sad. But I, I got to see it like in that rotating glass like because I, I flew from directly from Las Vegas to San Francisco and caught like the last two days of Macworld Expo. And so I got to see it in like the rotating glass pillar, which is very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Uh, you're basically like Indiana Jones there. Yeah, just, I'm exactly like yeah. Indiana Jones. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm glad somebody finally realized that. Yeah, well, he's a, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, the, the other thing I wanted to ask is since you basically wrote for Macworld, but you started on writing for it online, right? Yeah, I started writing for the blog that they had started around them was Mac User, not to be confused with the old Mac User magazine because Macworld and Mac User merged, I think, in the late 90s. Um, and they sort of, Macworld owned the Mac User name but had nothing to do with it. Like they didn't, they were obviously weren't going to put out two magazines. Um, so it kind of lay dormant for a while. And then Jason decided to start a Mac user blog because all these other sites were starting, you know, the unofficial Apple weblog was really popular. And a lot of these like Mac blogs were starting to pop up. And so he's like, well, let's have a, a blog that has like a little more informal tone. And it's a younger group of people writing for it. And we can get a bunch of different voices. So, yeah, so I started writing basically as a blogger for them, um, not getting paid very much. I think the original price they quoted me was $5 a post. Um, yeah, and they when I turned in my first month, they're like, okay, give yourself a bump to $7 a post. I was like, woo! <laughs> not great, not great. I mean, and I had a cap on how many posts I could put out for a month. So for the first several months, I was writing up to that cap. Like they told me, you can write 100 posts. And so I was like, I'm going to write 100 posts then (laughs) because I have no other job right now. So, uh, well, that makes sense, I guess. (laughs) 
yeah, it does make sense. It was hard. I was living, fortunately, I or unfortunately, I don't know, that might not be the right word, uh, because I had left my, my development job, I had moved back in with my parents. So they were really incentivized to get me out of there as fast as possible. <laughs> so they were very supportive, which was great. So see, the thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I sort of knew that from, I don't know, I guess I heard you talk about it somewhere else. But I think I talked to Mike Hurley about it on uh, one of his command space. Yeah. Oh, that might have been it. Yeah. But the thing, like, the thing I wanted to ask is how, how did you see that whole, you see, because you were writing for the website, I guess, or for the blog, right? Yeah. And then there was this whole other sort of group of journalists that were writing for the magazine. Yeah. Like, how did that interplay work? Because I'm sort of in a similar position now, because I'm basically the online editor of an actual magazine, not a tech magazine, it's like a political cultural magazine. Uh-huh. And the, the two desks are basically separate. Like, I just want to, like, I just want to know how, you saw the guys that wrote for the magazine. Well, it was interesting. Like, like I said, I was a huge reader of the magazine. Like I got print copies of it every month since I was like 14 or something. Um, and so I knew all the names in there and I was really excited to be like, you know, even considered in the same breath with some of these people. Um, and so I, it was, and it's, it changed a lot over my tenure there because when I came on board, I feel like it was pretty, like you're saying, like there was a wall between it to a certain extent because there was still the feeling of like, well, if we're online, we're giving that stuff away. So we kind of want to reserve like the good stuff for the print product that people are actually paying for. Um, But as I was there, you know, and I started doing more and more stuff for Macworld, I did uh, pitch a couple things for the the magazine. And I I think my first piece was like a how-to piece. Uh, and then I got some stuff published on Mac on the Macworld website. Um, and I remember, I do remember really early on getting, um, I was doing a review of something. I cannot remember what it was, but our reviews editor sent me this like lengthy package about all the like very specific things that I like you needed to do in order to review something. And it included like this crazy spreadsheet for like waiting, coming out with that final mouse rating. And you like, we're supposed to put in all these different factors and it like averages out. And I'm like, wow, this is way more complex than I, than I knew anything about. And, and as someone who had had no journalism training, I was like, Oh my God, I'm totally a fraud. Like, I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing here. Um, but I think that at some point that started to change because they realized that wasn't really sustainable as more and more stuff went online. And so by the point that I was sort of like in the middle of my tenure there, the way that it got reorganized was eventually that pretty much everything showed up online on the website first. And the magazine became more and more of a sort of best of compilation because when you're putting out a monthly magazine, for one thing, you can't really do news, right? Yeah. Because all the news you know, the month, the lag time is so long. I mean, it's like at least a month um, that anything that was recently relevant was, you know, people have read about it already because they've read all the websites, especially in Apple News, right? Where people is people are like pouring over those websites every day. There's nothing you can put out in the magazine that is going to be breaking news. So you're kind of limited to being like, all right, well, let's pick out sort of the most significant things and try to make sure we have sort of an analytical bent. Um, Same thing with reviews. Like you can't really time a review embargo for a new product. So those are going to lag behind. Um, And so even sort of the how-to stuff, a lot of that was called from the online stuff first. Um, And about the only thing I think that came out occasionally first in the magazine were features because those were big enough you could plan them ahead of time and they had generally some sort of timeless quality to them but even in a lot of those cases they were online first stuff because if apple came out with a new iphone and we wanted to use it as a feature like oh what everything you need to know about the new iphone um it still had to go online first because you couldn't hold on to that information for a month and be like oh yeah wait until our, our print magazine comes out and you can read all about the new iphone again everybody will have read about it already <laughs> So it's, I think it evolved a lot during the time that I was there and more and more they realized like these couldn't be two separate things. They had to sort of work together and it made sense for the online stuff to be first because otherwise your print product is increasingly irrelevant. Uh, I think a lot of places are still battling with that. Obviously Macworld at the same time that I left, they also discontinued their print magazine. Um, and so that will be less of an issue than they used to have. They are still playing out a digital edition every month, which I think will probably follow a similar path of like the best of type things from the, the, the online website. Um, but it's a lot of places are dealing with this challenge of how do you have a coexistence between a print and a digital 
because if you have like a print one that people are paying for and a digital one that is free and it has the exact same content, well, everyone's got smartphones and tablets now, so why wouldn't they just go online instead of trying to buy a print one? So I, I don't know. I I think it's it's interesting to watch this continue to evolve. I, I do still like reading hard copy magazines and stuff like that when I can get my hands on them, but it's more of a um, nostalgia factor probably than anything else. <laughs> you know, see, that, that's the thing because I don't know how the economics work out then. Right. Like, I know nobody does pretty much, I think, right? Even in America, right? Yeah. Nobody knows how you monetize the uh, website yeah. The, yeah. in the same, well, to the same level that you did the print magazine. Right. And even with the print magazine, I mean, it was always a. Uh, I was never involved in like really the business side of things, but I felt like it was always a question of like, well, when you're subscribing to it, they always offer these like crazy deals, like thirty dollars or something for like four years, you know, and and so that the unit cost of every magazine is first of all not that expensive, and even more to the point, way cheaper than if you were to go buy it like on a newsstand. Like if you just go buy a copy of a magazine, it's like five or six bucks, but you were essentially getting you know, 30 issues for, for $30 or something like that. Um, so I always wondered, well, is it the circulation of the subscribers? Is it the people buying stuff off the magazine stand? Who the hell is buying stuff off the magazine stand at this day and age? <laughs> yeah. Don't they know that it's so much more expensive? So I think you're totally right that it's, it's people trying to figure out print, but in some ways I feel like because most magazines had both those circulation, uh, that circulation revenue, but still got most of their money from advertising. It's not that the model is that much different. It's just that advertising in general, I think, has become a lot more scrutinized and a lot more questionable. And online, certainly, where there's a lot more of it, and it's harder to... In some ways, there are better tools for like tracking whether people are looking at your ads or not. But I think what you're realizing for that is maybe ads aren't as effective as you think they are. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. The click-through rates, I mean, right. like, at this point, like every marketing department, like online marketing department is lying to themselves. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you justify that. No, but I, I wonder if that was always kind of the case. It's just that it was a lot harder to quantify back in the days when people, you know, you, you paid someone, you paid a publication thousands of dollars, like, all right, we're going to put an ad in your publication. How do you then determine like, okay, X number of people saw our ads in this magazine and then went and bought our product? Uh, it's obviously they have like formulas and stuff that let them try to guess at that, but there's really no way to prove it. And I think that unless you get like a huge influx of people like, yes, I saw this ad in this thing and it made me come buy this thing. Um, it's really hard to track how effective those ads are. And so now that we have better tools, it's kind of like having, you know, a doctor with, and medical technology is advanced and we're better at diagnosing things. Um, so maybe as we've gotten better at figuring out that ads are less effective, there's sort of like a backwash effect where it turns out maybe those ads in the print magazines weren't that effective, <laughs> but people were paying for them. <laughs> well, my theory is that back then, like there was no internet. So right. when you bought a magazine, you actually went through the whole thing. True. Like, I think that's the only thing that sort of kind of messes up your theory. Yeah, that's a good point. You, you sort of, you, you did go through the whole thing, right? Oh, I remember, yeah. I, before we had the web, I remember when I would get my issues of Macworld, which were a lot longer, by the way, at that point, um, I would read it cover to cover, you know, in the space of a couple of days. And I would pour through all those, like, ads of, like, techno like, things I could buy from... Mac Mall or whatever. It's just all these different like like accessories and stuff. I would I would go over all of those with a fine tooth comb, like salivating over the day I could finally afford like a jazz drive or whatever. <laughs> jazz drives. That's old yeah, school. <laughs> that is super old school. <laughs> yeah, but see that that's sort of like I'm really interested in that because it's I don't know how this all shakes out because I, I saw the New Yorker basically went the other way, right? Because uh-huh. they knew they had this fan base and they just started charging more for the magazine. Yeah. You know, I think it's like seven bucks or something. Right. Which is above average, I think. Sure. And they have, I mean, they, I guess they feel like they, they have so much prestige and clout. I feel like they can, they think they can get away with it. And that's, I mean, you know, we could argue that's pretty much the point of economics in general is like you charge whatever the market will pay you, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so if that works, go ahead. <laughs> well, but I do think it also makes, I, I don't know, it does make a difference when you have sort of a, uh, uh, it's a weird word, but maybe like a passionate audience, I guess, that doesn't like, I think the weekly and the monthly magazines sort of were the most sane, like business model for uh, print 
because you at least had to wait a month then. And then you had like people invested in that month of waiting for your thing to come out, right? Right. Whereas like the daily news, I mean, at, like right now, it's basically pointless to buy a daily newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. I think even like Macworld, you know, even when like just before they scuttled the uh, print magazine, sort of made more sense because at least, like you said, the features, you could make them sort of a little bit more timeless and, you know, people could actually wait for it. Right. But like, I don't know how you do deal with that with a daily sort of, you know, magazine. Yeah, it's it's definitely tough. And I think there's definitely a generational breakdown too. Um, because I do think that the people probably who are still reading daily newspapers tend to be older folks who grew up that way. And that was, you know, how they got their news. Um, whereas I would be shocked to see if the, you know, newspaper circulation rates among people under the age of say 30 are like very high at all. Right. I don't think most people under the age of 30 are reading (laughs) print newspapers. So at some point, like, they're probably going to go away, right? Because that the your older market just starts dying off at a certain point. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's the that that's the the end game. There, <laughs> like yeah, I think that's how it all ends. Basically, it's just there's this whole generation that got used to buying newspapers, right? Uh, dies out, and then I don't know what happens. But see, that that's sort of my, I, I'm not asking you like what the solution is, but like what do you think? Like, do you think the the younger generation, let's say thirty and like under, right? Okay. Do you think that generation will ever like pay for stuff online? Like, actually pay for stuff online? God, I hope so. I mean, yeah, that's my answer as well. Always, sorry, I always yeah, say that's that. Fine. But yeah, I, and I don't know. I mean. Hmm. I'm trying to think about my conversations with like family members and stuff who are under that age. I think some of them do. Um, I think that the models of consumption are changing and, and I think it really depends on how you, uh, on like what kind of thing, like, for example, do I think that they will pay like four star, keep forking over like a dollar a song on iTunes? I'm a little skeptical of that because I think that they're they are coming of age in a coming of age they're like thirty uh, <laughs> in, in, in a in a time when there are so the, the prevalent model especially for things like media is sort of like an all you can eat model right like they're used to they've now grown up with things like Netflix um, and so they're used to the idea of like all right I'm going to pay a certain amount per month I'm going to get access to everything. Um, and they probably are used to things like Amazon where it's like, I'm going to fork over some money to get something. Um, and I think it really depends on, on what you're buying. Um, and I think apps are definitely, uh, the trickiest proposition when it comes there, because I think there are so many people who are like, no, no, I just downloaded this one cause it's free. Um, and so it is hard, even though we're talking about ridiculously small amounts of money when compared to the money that they spend on other things like you know, the time old time aged comparison to a cup of coffee, yeah. um, you know, and they'll, they'll fork over $7 for like some crazy thing with caramel. And I don't understand. I don't drink coffee, so I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but they'll fork over like $7 at Starbucks. But, if, you know, asking them to pay like five bucks for an app is blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just apps. I think that correlates well with like media yeah the the membership idea which which i know john gruber tried at daring fireball for a while um is is a tricky idea i mean like and you see things come up with like the patreon schemes where it's like you know subsidize my i want to be a person doing this and i would love to be able to sort of take recurring like like a sort of a sponsorship type thing but i i think that that's probably not the way that it's going to work for most people i think that the the kind of sites and media that can that can rightfully get people to fork over money for that are probably on the small end of the wedge. Yeah. See, this is, this always sounds so depressing. (laughs) Because I talk to Glenn about this, Glenn Fleischman. Mm -hmm. I just, but I do like hearing you guys talk about it because you're, you know, we're always sort of, like all of these trends sort of trickle out from America, I guess. Mm -hmm. Like most of them, although we are kind of specific over here in like Central Europe, I guess the UK is more similar to America. But I do, I do love hearing you guys talk about it because you've gone through some stuff that maybe, is or maybe isn't coming over here. I keep 
hoping you guys will learn from our stupid mistakes and do it better than we oh, do. Oh, that's not how it works, man. That is not how it just there's I think there's just tracks in place and the train just keeps on moving. That's I think that's how oh, it works. Oh gosh. Yeah, so we're a runaway train now. Wow, that's you're you're right. That definitely cheered me up. Yeah. Uh let's talk about like the incomparable. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a like a a better uh topic. But I, I want to ask you about podcasting in general because there's been a lot mm-hmm. of talk about that. But doing podcasts, right, or at least doing spoken word stuff, mm-hmm. were you always comf- comfortable with that or, like, did you have this period of adjustment? I, like, I do know now that you were an English major, so that sort yes. of makes sense and you had social skills, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I always find that fascinating because I think, like, I, in my experience, some people – basically freeze in front of a microphone yeah and then there's some people that sort of get used to it and then there's people that just die every time even if it's like five years in a row basically but i i you know i it's interesting the the sort of first memory i have of doing any sort of public speaking was in i think i was a sophomore in high school and one of the one of the things we just had to do as part of the curriculum was essentially give a speech and it was a intended to be some sort of persuasive argument and you had to get up in front of class and you weren't allowed to write it down you could have like note cards with like bullet points and stuff on them but you couldn't just like read a speech um and you had to sort of make a persuasive argument and i remember being terrified and i had to my my piece was on the communications decency act which at the time was sort of a contentious bill in the u.s congress that would have made it a lot easier for the government essentially to censor things online. Um, and so obviously there's big free speech implication and a lot of discussion over like, well, who gets to decide what is considered objectionable or not. And so I, I done a speech on that. And I just, I remember getting up there and being like, like sweating and shaking and all that. And I don't know when the point was where I sort of adjust. I see. And that's the thing is I think I realized at some point that I really enjoyed performing um and that performing to me was a very different feel from having to say present a prepared work oh okay for some reason in my brain those are two separate things so getting up there and knowing that i had to persuade a bunch of people or make an argument that was like laid out in sort of a logical fashion was really difficult for me um but if i got up and i was just sort of trying to like work with an audience and sort of get them to respond to me, make, maybe make them laugh or maybe just, you know, try to be entertaining in some way that was not as scary. Um, and I'm, I'm not really, I'm not an actor. Like I took an acting class in college, which I think was definitely enlightened, enlightening. Um, but even with that, like having to memorize and remember lines <laughs> was a lot, was, that's just not as good for me because then as soon as I have a script or something that I need to stick to, I'm always panicking that I'll forget or that I'll miss a cue or something like that. But if I just get up and I just need to sort of ad lib and talk improvisationally, it's fine. For whatever reason, my brain can just do that sort of automatically. Uh, and it's amazing to me even at this point because, you know, when I go on podcasts every week and I, I never have things planned out that I want to say, especially, you know, when we do the incomparable and I'll come in and Jason and, and John Syracuse and some of our other panelists will have like lengthy notes written out of all the things they want to talk about. I have nothing. I go in with nothing. <laughs> I have no notes. I have nothing. I just want to, I'm just there for the conversation. Like it's for me, it's like a sport. It's like, oh, you're going to say this thing. It's like, it's like watching tennis. It's like someone hits the ball at you and you're like, oh, all right, I should hit it like this. And then you like make a response and then they hit it back in a different way. And so I, for me, I really enjoy that aspect of it because even I don't know what I'm going to say at certain <laughs> points. So I, I've done a few talks at conferences, which are always fun. And, and that it's a little better. I've gotten a little better at like trying to prepare things and have like, here's the things that I want to talk about. It still makes me anxious because I'm a procrastinator and I'll never do it. Like my most recent talk, which was at the last Singleton conference, um, I think I did it like the day or two beforehand. <laughs> it wasn't my best talk. I will, I will say that. And I, I'm sorry that I didn't take more time to do it. Um, but I, I, will, I'm, I will, I'm a terrible procrastinator. And so I will just put stuff off if I don't have a really good deadline. Oh, yeah. But, Working towards yeah. a deadline. That's Yeah. If, well, the writers, right? Like that's, we're great at that. Yeah. That, it's the only thing that actually makes you do it. I don't know. Yep. <laughs> it's, the, it's so, yeah, that's a weird mind trick that I think, like, I think you learn to live with that mind trick when you're in school because uh-huh. it's all deadlines. Yep, absolutely. But like most people, when they leave school, those deadlines sort of go away, like that kind of deadline. Yeah. 
Exactly. What, like, except for us, the people that write. And <laughs> it's just, it's basically school, all, like all over again, I think. Yeah, whenever I have long form things that people are like, oh, what do you think about writing a longer piece about this thing? And I'm like, okay. And then they ask me like every week, like, how's that long form thing coming? I'm like, man, eh, whatever, it's fine. And I was like, <laughs> I haven't started it yet. I haven't done this. Like, you never told me when you wanted it. Like, I'm not going to do it until you tell me when you want it. Um, which is why I always really, I really like short, short pieces with like quick turnaround. That's kind of my, my jam. Um, but the, as far as the, the podcasting thing goes, I think you're right that a lot of people have different, uh, methods of dealing with that. And I think a lot of it does come out of the fact that at least in the U.S. schools, to my knowledge, we don't really spend a lot of time anymore on teaching people how to have a conversation or make an argument or get up and give a, a speech. And I don't think necessarily that all of those are skills that are as commonly needed. Like most people don't need to know how to give a speech, but you should know how to sort of comport yourself in a conversation um, that's like a publicized conversation, I feel like, like some form of public speaking. Um, and I, I feel like whether that takes the form of something like an acting class or like improvisational acting or things like that, I think there's a lot of different ways you could accomplish that and, and different approaches will work for different people. I, I find that, like I said, for me, it's kind of like a, like a, my brain is a just in time compiler. Like as, <laughs> as I'm talking, I don't really know what I'm going to say next, but somehow my brain has already filled it in. And, and when I occasionally am like, have that little part of me that's watching myself talk and being like, how are you coming up with this? It's like, I don't know, but it sounds good. Just keep going. Well, yeah, I, I can relate to that to a point, to a point. I do, I do make notes. Like I did prepare for this, but I always throw them out. Yeah, let's see. I think that's good. Yeah, I never have them in front of me because then it, it, I, like, I have this tendency to read off the questions and then I sound like a news announcer. <laughs> and I just hate that. That's not what... You know what really helps, as I found, is, um, and I'll say this for myself, uh, egotism, <laughs> which is that uh, I basically, you know, maybe, maybe I won't go so far as to say I'm in love with the sound of my own voice, but I do feel like I will, I've told people in the past, like, if you stick a microphone in my face, I will just keep talking <laughs> until you make me stop. For whatever reason, I don't know, but I I will just keep talking about whatever whatever you want me to talk about and I really have very little control over that. So, <laughs> I, and that's that's something that gets me in trouble sometimes. I feel like cuz I I don't I don't like uh, I feel like I get in trouble interrupting people on podcasts cuz I really want to talk about this thing. Um so I'm trying to get better about that, but for whatever reason, the the performing aspect of it and the sort of uh, realizing there's an audience, I think that's the biggest thing that you can do that they don't teach you how to deal with in those public speaking classes is working with the audience. And I found that when I gave talks at conferences, the biggest thing that helps sort of relax me is like this audience, they want to like you. Like, cause, and I sat in a lot of audiences of other people's talks and it's like, you want to be entertained. You're there to sort of hear something cool and hopefully agree with it or, or at least be challenged by it. And, maybe be amused or whatever. And I think knowing that, you know, your audience wants to like you helps me relax a lot because I feel like, well, it's just like having a conversation with friends who we, we just, we all want to have a good time. Um, and so I think that that's something that helps me make a, a much better impression and not just sort of start panicking is the idea. It's like these people have not come here to like throw rotten fruit at me <laughs> and, and yell at me and boo me off the stage. Like this is, a, this is to a certain degree, a safe place. Yeah, It's not an adversarial like situation. Right. Basically. Exactly. Right. I can relate to the, just talking about stuff randomly because yeah. And it gets me into trouble as well. So <laughs> I, I I know exactly what you mean. And once in high school, I talked for forty five minutes about yogurt, and I got an A. So that that made sense somehow. Wow! Yeah, that was that's my crowning achievement in uh, Slovene class. Uh, in uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. I just told the teacher that I can talk about anything for the whole hour because I didn't want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, and then like one of my classmates said, let's just talk about yogurt, and I basically talked about yogurt made the teacher laugh and cry and i'm not making this up and then i got an a that was my only a that year in living class that's still that is amazing and i think that is a skill and it's maybe some people <laughs> have it and some people don't i don't know if i could spend an hour talking about yogurt um but if i do i'll record it and put it out as a podcast <laughs> the yogurt cast that's yeah, yeah the yogurt cast that, that's new that that's should be in. a thing yeah <laughs> I, before we go to your like hardware and software, I do have one more thing to ask you. Okay. Because uh, I like we talked about this when I was on Clockwise, but the whole Marvel Unlimited thing, right? Oh yeah. I've been trying to get into uh, American comics 
Because mm-hmm. over here, when I was young, they were like either really expensive and really scarce. Yeah. Those are the two attributes I would give them. So uh, I wasn't re- like into them that much, but I'm sort of trying because you guys talk about it all the time. But did you, did you, did, you did say something very interesting uh, on the Clockwise podcast. Actually, after we recorded, I asked you guys. That's pretty rare well, for me to say something interesting. So yeah, <laughs> tell me what it is. I don't remember. <laughs> no, no. We, I was asking you guys if you could give me some recommendations on what to read. right? And then I explained that when I opened the Marvel Unlimited app, there was like 17 different, like 17,000 different. Yeah, it's overwhelming. <laughs> sort of series and events and stuff. And you said, yeah, that's why I don't read them that much. Right? <laughs> that was the interesting bit. And like, <laughs> no, but I had no idea it worked like that. Honestly, like I had no, like, because the stuff I saw here were like basically Marvel and DC uh-huh. and honestly more DC because Batman was really big over here and the dark, sure, the Bob, yeah. Bob Kane stuff. Right. Yep. And I just never, I, I don't know, like the stuff I saw in the store sort of made sense to me. Like that that's Spider-Man, like that's Batman. I had uh-huh. no idea there's like like three different versions going on at once. Oh God, at least, yeah. yeah like when did that start? Like, Jeez, oh, I would say probably, so comics has gotten increasingly weird. And I really, I read them a bunch as a teenager, but I kind of got out of them probably towards like late, like around the time I turned 18 or something. I just think I, I sort of lost interest in a lot of it. Um, and I couldn't tell you, I still have this incredibly huge reserve in my brain of all this comics knowledge. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure where I got it because part of me like remembers knowing this stuff, um, when I was a teenager and I'm like, but there was no Wikipedia. How did I find out about all these things? <laughs> um, and I really can't remember. And it's kind of creepy. Um, but yeah, I think that, well, Marvel and DC obviously have always been the two largest sort of comics publishers and, and superhero comics have always been sort of a predominant uh, uh, genre of of comics. I, I had a really good friend. My my best friend from growing up did a uh, undergraduate thesis on comics, and I remember for years he would expound about how there's all these other great comics. They're not superhero comics, and you should read those because like it's not like you go into a bookstore and all they have are like one type of books. Like they don't just have mysteries. Um, and he was kind of I think he he wanted to really advocate for like moving away from superhero comics, and there are a ton of great non-superhero comics i've I've read many and i i they're really great and some of the most prominent you know comics out there are non-superhero comics um but i've only recently started to get back into reading some of these superhero comics and part of the reason as i told you was um for not reading more is that it is it's overwhelming i was like i don't know where to start yeah um a good friend of mine reads a lot of comics currently um and he's a big batman fan and he's like, but what he got really annoyed recently was that so many of the stories would interweave through all these different titles. And so he'd be like, this, he read, he was giving me some example. I think it was something to do with the Joker. And he's like, he had done something creepy. And he's like, but this was covered in a totally different series. And he's like, well, I would have had to read, read that series in order to understand what was going on, even though it's sort of recapped in the series that I am reading. But I really feel like now I'm kind of missing out because there's elements of this story are happening in other comics that I'm not reading. But as soon as you start picking up those comics, there's other comics that you still have to like read into. And then I think that's probably the goal of the companies is like, well, we want you to read everything because then you buy everything and we make so much more money. (laughs) Um, But I think that sort of... But that's like in the eighties and nineties, that sort of really yeah. kicked off with all those inter, all those big events that span all these different titles. And it was an attempt, I think, probably to get you to read more comics. It's like, well, we got people out there, but they're only buying Batman or they're only buying X Men or whatever. And it's like we need to bolster all the sales of all our other series. So in order to do that, let's have a big thing that like crosses over all these different titles, and then they'll have to buy all the other titles in order to make sense. Annoying. Yeah, that's such a douchey move. Like I, I agree. Yeah. I don't know. That's just feels icky to me. Like it's, I don't know why. Um, That's part of the reason that I'm the only things I read right now are tend to be more self-contained things. So I think Jason and I both recommended Hawkeye to you. Yeah, um, although I started reading the Iron Fist, the Mortal Iron Fist. Yep, and that is awesome. Which is also really good. Yeah. Um, and but it's also it kind of there are definitely hooks in there to things that have gone before, and especially as far as the characters go, you get like a little bit of history of the characters. Um, but it's it's largely self-contained, which is nice. Um, and I think the same thing is true about Hawkeye, which I also really enjoy, which is it's it mostly doesn't matter too much if you haven't read anything else. All that really matters is you kind of know who Hawkeye is. Even in that case, you do run into some of his interactions with other characters. You're like, 
I don't know what the history between these characters are, so I end up going to my best friend Wikipedia and looking up like, oh, what, what are these two characters? Oh, they used to be married. Like, oh, that explains a lot, you know. <laughs> um, and and my other the other thing I'm reading right now is Saga, which is totally self-contained because it's all you know Brian K. Vaughan, uh, his crazy imagination. Um, and so I've read a bunch of other stuff like that in the past where it's sort of like self-contained series, and I also don't tend to read series until they're done because I don't like the idea of it's it's the same thing you run into with like reading like Game of Thrones or something. It's like, oh, well, now I've caught up and now I have to wait five years before the next book comes out. <laughs> yeah. It's like I don't want to get into the trap of having to buy comics every month. So I'm going to wait till they're done and then I will get the trade paperbacks or borrow them from friends or whatever and then just read the entire series in one sitting. Because I, I have problems where I tend to forget things. So I'll read like, you know, especially, you know, Game of Thrones is another good example. I will read four books i will wait several years the next book will come out i'll start reading that book and remember and realize i don't remember what any of these people did in the last book or like how they got here or what the hell is going on um so that's a problem for me so i like to read things sort of in a short time window well yeah and that's what marvel unlimited is sort of awesome at because you can just go through it right yeah i think i'm like three quarters through the the item face so yeah that was nice yeah i've been really enjoying it i I like this like the month is going to be up soon like i think i have like three more weeks or two more weeks and then uh-huh. i really need to decide if i want to fork over those 10 bucks like, that's gonna be yeah that's that's gonna be a tough one now so yeah yeah that's tricky yeah but it's a great service i don't, I actually don't use it that much um i don't think i'm a subscriber currently but i've done like you i've gotten the free month and like read a bunch of stuff um but yeah i uh i know jason snell really likes it and it does seem like a really good way to get access to a bunch of comics without breaking the bank because i bought some digital comics for a little bit and realized wow i cannot afford this like it's just too expensive (laughs) to keep up with all these different things that like for like three four bucks an issue which i can read in like half an hour it's like that's that's not a good cost value proposition for me yeah it gets weird yeah because i I remember like a year ago when comicsology was the big thing right right Right. I just kept like, where do you people get all this money? Like, I just don't like you. That is a lot. Like, if you want to read a whole series and buy each one individually, Jesus, like it adds yeah, up. It really does. It's add up. very, very quickly too expensive. Okay, so now we uh, move to your uh, hardware and software. And we can start with your hardware. So, so what do you currently use? Well, let's see. Right now, hardware wise, I am sitting in front of an iMac. It is from 2011, I believe. Um, it's 21.5 inches. It's pretty good. Uh, I've been, this one, um, I've been using for, I think I got it in 2011. So I got it new. Uh, my favorite feature about it is that it has a small blue line that goes part of the way up the display from the bottom, (laughs) which I've never gotten fixed. Um, because at some point I was like, man, I whatever I have on, other computers. On, on which side is it? On the right side. It's right in the. It's right in the middle. Oh wow! Yeah, it goes right through my dock. You know, what's funny is like I actually have gotten to the point where unless I'm thinking about it, I don't notice it anymore. Oh, even that's it goes, sad, man. That's it's about four or five inches. Um, yeah, so that's that's my favorite part about the computer. It it actually works pretty well. This is sort of like my workhorse these days. Um, because it's my it's my mic is hooked up to it. Speaking of which, yes, my podcasting setup is attached to it, which includes uh, a, a Blue Yeti, Woo-hoo! which is mounted on a shock mount with a on a Heil boom arm, which I invested in earlier this year, and I really really like. Um, and that's uh, connected to my, uh, connected to the iMac, and I've got a pair of headphones that I got for free in some speaker bag years ago. They're Shures. They're pretty good, like studio headphones. Oh, okay. Um, Let's see. What else have I got? Um, my current phone is an iPhone 6. Uh, I had most of the iPhones. I think the 5S was the first one I did not get when it came out. I actually skipped that year. Um, and since the iPhone 6 came out after I left Macworld, I paid for it out of my own pocket. But I did sell a bunch of my old phones, which is nice. <laughs> um, so I got a good deal on it. Uh, my Let's see. I also have a laptop, which is a MacBook Air. I just bought... Um, like uh, Jason uh, Snell, I had some money oh, the IDG. from my former employer. Yeah. Yes, the IDG <laughs> discount. So I, um, I, I, which is tricky because I kind of wanted a Retina iMac because the this iMac is a little bit long in the tooth, but I um, couldn't afford it with my stipend. So I instead, but oh, yeah, but that machine is awesome. I saw one. We had a review unit here last uh, last week. Oh, man, just I, you know, it's on my list, but I feel like I'm going to need to invest a little more time. Or this one, the current, I, you know, and and I don't mind waiting for a second revision. Like I feel like the first revision of a new product like that is always there's always some kinks to work out. 
So I, I feel like I can wait and see what comes down the next time. Um, but I was a little sad because I did buy a new MacBook Air instead, which I really love. And it's basically just an updated version of the MacBook Air I already had, um, except I really wanted a Retina MacBook Air and they're not out yet. So <laughs> I instead had to buy a new MacBook Air without a Retina display. So I still don't have a Retina display on any of my Macs, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but it is a, it's an 11-inch MacBook Air, which I love. Uh, I've been using the previous one, I think, for that was also a 2011-era machine. Um, and I love the form factor. I really just, it's my favorite, it's my favorite Mac ever um, because it's small. It's super light. I used to travel a bunch for work, and it's it was great that I could, like, just slip it in a bag, and it would not, like, be, like, carrying my old four or five-pound MacBook around. <laughs> um, I, I love how light and small it is. And I know a lot of people don't like the 11-inch screen, but for me, it's great because it just fits everywhere. It fits on an airplane tray table. It fits on the tiny tables at coffee shops, um, all this stuff. So it's it's a pretty powerful machine, and the new ones have really great battery life. And it's, for me, just, it's one of the best Macs. It's, it's the best Mac I've ever owned. I just, I love it. Um, I do have a cinema display that I sometimes hook up to it but i usually forget these days because <laughs> i'm usually sitting in front of the imac um so sometimes i'll remember and hook up the cinema display to my macbook and be like oh a 27 inch screen this is great <laughs> why am i not doing this all the time um but it makes for a weird setup in my office because i have two desks um because i have a desk that i've had since i moved into this apartment which is where the cinema display and the macbook usually live and then a few years ago, I got a convertible sit-stand desk, and that's where the iMac now lives. So I have two desks <laughs> in my <laughs> office, which seems really dumb, um, but I do like using the standing desk sometimes. You have a um, day desk and a night desk. I so do, I, I do, I, I, I do. I have to say that. <laughs> yes, I have a day desk and a night desk, and then I work from the couch sometimes, so there's that. <laughs> Let's see. I've got a uh, iPad. I just bought an iPad Mini 2. So this is last year. Oh, I bought Mini. that when I was in the States in September. Yeah, so yeah, love it. And it was a much better deal than the Mini 3 that just came out. Because yes. they are, they're the exact same hardware. Yes. They just Sadly, the new one doesn't have the Touch ID thing, which I do like, but I wasn't prepared to pay the extra premium. And I got a refurb too, so it was even cheaper. I did the same thing. Yeah, it's a great yes. deal. Awesome deal. Well, I did get it before the new one was yeah. out. Even so. Because I was there. But yeah, also the, the refurb stuff, is I had no idea. Like Casey Lee told me about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, he just said, "Yeah, just look on the because I went to America, so I could actually get it there. Mm -hmm. And then there's no customs because I just brought it over. Ah, yeah, so just awesome. Yeah, that's like I just wrote a uh, a review of like the best uh, tablets, basically. Uh huh. And the iPad uh, Mini Two wasn't really." in the running because it's not really a new thing right mm -hmm. but it actually won anyway <laughs> for cheap tablet because we did like a premium uh, yeah. one where the air to one and then i needed uh -huh. to find a cheap one and i was it was either that or the nexus 7 which are like they came out in the same year i think mm -hmm. but like that one is just it's insane yeah like the the value you get for yeah okay, just saw oh it. yeah i just and i sold off a couple of my old i saw if i had a first gen ipad mini which i liked but the it was just so sluggish and the non-retina screen was kind of getting to the end of its useful life <laughs> but i sold that and i sold an old ipad 2 and got almost enough to cover oh nice um my new ipad mini so it worked great and i'm super excited and i love i love this ipad mini um, and so let's see, in addition to that stuff, my other big setup is my, uh, my HDTV. I bought a new TV back in August, 55 inch TV. It seems enormous. <laughs> um, but people kept telling me, I was like, oh, I'm thinking like a, my 40 inch old Samsung TV broke. And so people were like, oh, get a bigger one get a bigger one. You'll be happy you got a bigger one. I'm like, well, I don't know. All those seem so big and so big. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll get like a 50-inch one. And then they're like, no, no, go to the next size up. I think John Syracuse bugged me about this too. And I was like, all right, fine. So I'll get the next one up, whatever. So I bought that. I'm like, whoa, this is so nice. <laughs> oh, this is... <laughs> so I guess I could have gone bigger. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like, you're, uh, you couldn't know this, but I, I was about to buy a 64-inch nice. <laughs> Samsung Plasma because they stopped making them. Yep. And yep. there were just a couple of left in the entire country over here. Mm -hmm. And the day I wanted to buy it, it got sold. The last one got sold. Ah, so, yeah, and terrible. I've been saving up for that. And now I'm stuck with my 2007, like 32 inch oh, no. LG LCD, which, oh. like, I've been mourning that plasma for the last seven days like that's that's really sad i'm sorry to hear that yeah so yeah it's just funny you should bring that up because well yeah. if you, 
If you want it, if you want to buy it, my friend's been trying to get rid of his 50 inch uh, plasma, which uh, he because he wants like an 85. inch one. So <laughs> I'm sure the shipping costs are probably outrageous. <laughs> yeah, just uh, yeah, just a pittance. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I have so I've got my TV set and I have I think as I wrote on uh, Six Colors uh, last week or a week or two ago, I have a slight problem with buying things that plug into my television. <laughs> yeah. So I have a uh, Apple TV, a Fire TV. I now have a Fire TV stick. I also have an Xbox and a Mac Mini hooked up to it, um, and all of those are basically for watching some form of TV or another. And yet, I don't have I don't have cable TV, um, probably because I have six devices hooked up already. Yeah, I don't have cable either, so yeah, I, I can. Talk, I do have a Chromecast because I'm on Android, so that makes more sense. I, but, yeah. I had one and I took it to a hotel and left it there by accident. <laughs> so, oh well. So I bought a new fire. I bought the Fire TV stick when it came out because they had Amazon was selling it here for like twenty bucks if you were an Amazon Prime member. I was like, at twenty bucks, I can afford to buy that and sort of play around with it it's pretty good and it works with hotel wi-fi or it's supposed to work in the future yeah it will it will work with hotel wi-fi which i'm really excited about because that was my biggest problem with the chromecast was that it never quite managed to work as well as i wanted yeah i, to. I read that piece because i review all of that stuff as well so well the amazon stuff not really because it's useless over here <laughs> oh yeah because yeah, yeah no service just it's yeah. useless we we got a bunch of like fire tablets and they're like it's the most pointless device if you're not an American. It's just there's pretty much nothing you can do on it. Well, that's too bad. Yeah, yeah. I'm still using my Apple TV predominantly right now, but I, I just I think I wrote a piece last week for Six Colors about how I'm a little disappointed <laughs> that they haven't haven't taken a sort of a big push on that. So I'm waiting for uh, whatever whatever they come out with next year. I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that Apple's going to make a big push on a on a new set top or some sort of some sort of TV connected device, but. Um, probably after the whole watch thing. Um, (laughs) so yeah, I think that covers sort of most of my, most of my, most of my hardware, I think. As far as software goes, since you Uh got an iPad user, always ask that because I think the phone apps are sort of, you know, but like any iPad specific apps you really like to use? (sighs) iPad specific apps. I'm going to look at my home screen and see what actually is on here because, um, clearly that's how important it is. Um, (laughs) Well, most of my stuff tends to be universal stuff that runs on either the iPad or the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that uh, the things that I find myself relying on a lot include um, – I really like Goodreader um, on my uh, iPad for reading PDFs, um, though I've recently also been working with um, – what is it? PDF Expert, I think, um, which is also a really good PDF app. Uh, I tend to do a lot more PDF stuff on my iPad than um, on my – uh, iPhone. Um, wow, I have an app on here that doesn't work anymore, I think, which is <laughs> hilarious. Why is it still on my home screen? That shows you how much I update my home screen. <laughs> um, I also am I'm kind of a crossword aficionado. So I have the New York Times crossword app, which I try to do every day, which I love on the iPad. It's fabulous. Um, and let's see. Oh, I just downloaded this app today. It's not an iPad-specific app, but I just downloaded it today because it just came out called Workflow, okay. um, which is like kind of like an automator app for ios super cool looking it's basically like you can like drag and drop different actions and like make workflows and um has a lot of cool stuff in it it's like a viticia app basically yeah Yeah. exactly exactly (laughs) um yeah of course sadly the joke was um you better buy it now before apple makes them take it down (laughs) it's like oh so sad you're a safari or a chrome guy uh, I am a Safari guy. I will tell you one app that I am using recently, which I really enjoy, even though it's kind of dumb, is um, there's a, it's an app called Hanks Writer, which I think was in uh, Apple's collection of best apps in 2014. Oh, the Tom Hanks typewriter. Yes. <laughs> I kind of started playing around with it on a whim, but I love the sound, like the typewriter sound and look of it. And so I've actually been – the book I'm writing right now, I've been writing entirely in this, <laughs> which is hilarious because it's really not that great for it. Um, but it's, it just feels, it's like sort of a supernatural noir story. So it feels like having the, the keys clack in the background oh, wow. just feels so right. So I've really been enjoying that. It's a cute app. It crashes a lot. <laughs> Fortunately, it seems to be pretty robust about like not losing any work. Um, and it has a couple other bugs that I've run into. And I'm kind of doubting that anybody, including Tom Hanks, has used it as much as I have now. <laughs> um, but I will say I, I enjoy it a lot. And it's a really charming app. So And it is, I think, iPad only. So there's a good iPad only app to recommend. <laughs> awesome. Have you seen that Kickstarter where they did... Uh... Oh, is that the... Yeah, I, I don't so. know what it's called. It's like a. Is type- that the 
the Hemming Wright. Oh, I saw. No, I think that had a, well, maybe there's more of them. I thought different. Oh, is there one, more than one? Okay. Yeah, it's like a clicky keyboard that's shaped like a typewriter, which, which, which you can use with your iPad. Oh, and iPhone. okay. Yeah, it's like this. It looks awesome, honestly. It looks like really retro. I would be, I would be the, yeah, I'd be the envy of everybody in the coffee shop when I come in with my clunk. Yeah, but yeah. Then, then you need a hipster beard and some like thick rim glasses, I think. That's true, and I don't wear glasses, so they would need to be fake glasses, fake glasses, which is extra, yeah. <laughs> extra hipstery. <laughs> okay, well, this brings me to my last question, which is always uh, the same. If you had to pick one physical thing, it can be a gadget or not. I've gotten like room heaters for answers and stuff, which you think made an impact in your life. You might still have it. You might not. But what would that th- one thing be? Um, I would have to pick, you know, maybe this is, yeah, I, I'm very sentimental. I would have to pick my my uh, my first car. Okay. Um, which was? I, it was a Honda Accord. It was nothing very special, um, but I learned to drive stick shift on that car. Oh, awesome. Um, and, I, and I'm still a stick shift driver to this day. I had to, unfortunately, that car died about two years ago, and I bought a new car, which is also a stick shift, which I really like, but it was not. I, so I, I had that car. Let's see. I got it in 2000, and I drove it up until 2012. So I had that car for 12 years, um, and I loved it. I drove it across the country and back. Um, and I just, it was for me and I, and I, and I always think about this. It was kind of like, it was like my millennium Falcon. It's like, you know, I knew it inside and out. I knew where it would break down. I knew exactly like the things I had to do in order to like get it working again, like exactly where to like, like bang the console so something would work right. And I just, I love that car. And I, I, you know what? I'm not too proud to admit that I cried like a baby when I had to get rid of it because I was just, I had been part of my life for so long and part of, you know, who I was. And I, I really loved driving and I had put a ton of miles on that car. And I was, I'm always sort of in the, in the group of my friends. I'm always the person who drives people around. So I, I had a lot of good memories associated with that car. Um, and I was really sad that it, it eventually hit a point where I just couldn't, it could not be repaired. And so I, I actually ended up donating it to a place that actually fixes cars up and then gives them to people that need them, oh, awesome. which act, which was really, and I got a nice note from the person who got my car and she really loved that I had put in, I had just put in a new, uh, stereo system with like a USB connector and everything. <laughs> and she was like, Oh, your stereo is so great. I'm so happy. And I was like, you know what? I feel like it went to a, went to a good home and somebody's getting use out of it. It wasn't just junked because i felt like there were a lot of miles left in that car as old as it was so i have to say i i really think still think back fondly on that car um and i'm i'm sad that i don't have it anymore but i'm glad that somebody else is making good use of it so i, I think it made a pretty big impact on my life no ah, that was an awesome answer and nice to hear you're a normal person and use a stick shift because <laughs> when i was yeah. in america in september i drove a prius which is an automatic and it's the weirdest yep. thing i've ever done <laughs> i don't know how people do that how you like every american doesn't basically die in a car but like yeah <laughs> uh, uh, pretty close yeah just um, weird it is I, I love stick shifts and they're kind of dying over here which is sad so i'm yeah casey told me that as well which you know, I know sometimes yeah. you americans man like it's just i yeah i don't understand it either i'm with you yeah Th- then that's pretty much it thank, thanks thank you very much for doing this honestly well thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure